Pray with me and we're going to get into God's Word. Father in heaven, today we're talking about the foundations of relationship with you. For some of us, we have, uh, we've walked this for a long time. For others, it's brand new. It does not matter where we're at in this process. There's a great deal for us to learn. There's a great deal that we can add to our relationship with you. I pray that you'll help us do that this morning. Lord, would you let us look deeply into our own faith, see exactly where it's at and what needs to happen with it. And then, Lord, would you stretch us. Stretch us into uncomfortable places that we might be comfortable in you, safe in you. But Lord, that uh, seems like such an oxymoron for us to say, make us uncomfortable that we might be comfortable, but that's how it works. So I pray that you'll do that for each one of us. I'm also asking that you'll help me communicate clearly your words. In Jesus' name, amen. It was interesting to me this morning in our standing tall men's ministry, which by the way, fellas, if, if you weren't there, you missed out on just a great morning. Brian asked that all of the guys share some of their story with everyone else. And he didn't give anybody an out. He went person by person around the room and made everybody share their story. It was wonderful. I needed to leave 20 minutes before I did, but I couldn't walk out of there because I wanted to hear everybody's stories. And I thought it was really interesting that Brian was doing that today when I was going to follow it up by sharing three different faith stories with you this morning, starting with a fellow named Mike. Mike grew up in an interesting home. His father was a very competitive man, his mother a very competitive woman, and they passed those traits on to Mike. Everything that he did was turned into a competition. Who had the best grades in your class? Who did the best on the test? Who did best out at recess? Who was picked first? Who was picked last? All the conversation in their home centered around that type of of a, a conversation and communication. Mike grew up believing that he had to be the best at everything. Mike grew up believing that if he did not come in first, it certainly wasn't his fault. His parents actually took all of their competition into the realm of blame and denial when Mike didn't quite measure up to everything they thought he should. Well, it was the ref's fault in sports, or it was the teacher's fault in the classroom, or it was the friend's fault within those circles and so on. Mike was convinced that he was the best at everything. And if it didn't show on paper, it wasn't his fault. As a result of that, when Mike got older, he had some pretty major hurdles to overcome in his life. Blame, denial, competition, and so on. The fact that he believed not only was he the best at everything, but he knew everything about everything. One of his biggest hurdles to overcome was relationships. Nobody wanted to be around him. Nobody ever wanted to spend time with him. Nobody wanted to talk with him. He was one of those individuals that no matter what you've done, he's done it as well and he's done it better. Mike was tough for anybody to be with. He would tell you that he had a lot of friends. What it really boiled down to was he had a lot of acquaintances in his life. He was a Christian, though, attended church on a regular basis. He was struggling with the things of God and trying to grow in his relationship with him. And for that, Mike should be applauded. If you were to ask Mike about his earliest memories, he would walk you into his living room. If he could do it physically, he would. If not, he would do it figuratively. And he would take you trophy by trophy across the mantle. At 35 years old, his parents still had all those trophies sitting in the living room. 
And Mike would tell you about each one of those victories. If you were to ask him about his favorite verse in the Bible, Mike would very quickly quote Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's what Mike held on to all the time. I've got a great future out in front of me because God has orchestrated it. Well, he went to church with another fella named Smoke. Smoke had a completely different story. His parents convinced him that he could not do anything at all, that he didn't have any gifts, he had no talents, he had no abilities, he was absolutely worthless. And Smoke carried himself that way. In any conversation, you would very quickly pick up on the fact that this man had no self-esteem whatsoever and what he did have was very, very low. Ask him about what it was like growing up and he would tell you that as much as he wanted a relationship with his dad, his dad was always too busy. He wanted his dad to teach him certain things, so he'd go out in the garage with him, and his dad would say, oh, you're just in the way, you need to get out of here, and Smoke would crawl back inside. He wanted to learn to hunt and fish, and his dad said, I don't have time to do that with you, maybe later. And Smoke never got, to get to, got the privilege of doing the things that he wanted to do. If you were to ask him about his earliest memories growing up, Smoke would tell you that the first thing he can remember is having to write a paper in school about how he got his name. He went home from school that afternoon and asked his mother about it, and she got a big smile on her face, and she said, well, when I was pregnant with you, we had made plans for both of us to go to the hospital. We weren't very excited about it because, quite honestly, Smoke, you were not planned, and you came at a very inconvenient time, but we were both going to be in the hospital when you were born. We went when I went into labor, but the labor took quite a a long time. And four hours before you were born, your father quit waiting. He needed a pack of cigarettes, so he left the hospital and he went and bought them. I don't know what else he did during that four-hour period of time, but that's how long he was gone. When he came back, you had just been born, and the nurse asked him about a name. They needed to put a name on the birth certificate, and he had that pack of cigarettes in his hand. He looked down at it, and he said, name him Smoke. That's where your name came from. Smoke lived all of his life knowing that he was not wanted, he was not planned, he was nothing but an inconvenience, and he was named after a pack of cigarettes. That's his earliest memory. Ask him about his favorite verse in Scripture, and Smoke was a Christian, goes to church all the time. He'll grab his Bible and open up for you to the book of Romans, and he'll read out of chapter 3 these words. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's his favorite passage of Scripture. I've never heard anybody use that as a favorite passage of Scripture. That was Smokes. Tells you a lot about how he sees life. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one's good enough. And if you were to ask Smoke, he would tell you, certainly he wasn't. Well, there's another individual I want to introduce you to. His name is David. David has a story that kind of fits right between these two. He's figured some things out. He doesn't look at life as if he is the best thing that's ever happened, and he certainly doesn't look at life as if he's the worst thing that ever happened. David seems to have a balance. He really does. 
Now, David's life was not necessarily a fairy tale growing up. When he was eight years old, his parents were killed in a car wreck. He had to go live with his grandparents. They were loving grandparents, but he had to leave the the safety and the security and the familiarity of living with his mom and dad to go live with his grandma and grandpa. Grandma and grandpa, wonderful Christians, but David carried with him a, a pretty heavy chip was right on his shoulder. He was angry all the time because God had taken his mother and father and he couldn't understand why that happened. Grandma and grandpa would tell him that he just needed to pray about it and he needed to expect that God would answer his prayer and when God answered his prayer, he would understand. Well, David prayed and understanding never came his way. But he went to a a camp one summer, a Christian camp, and he heard the, the preacher that evening, or one of those evenings, stand up and, and share the love of Jesus Christ. And it grabbed him. He doesn't know why, because he'd heard all kinds of sermons, but this one grabbed him. And David decided right there that he was going to give his life to the Lord. Next night, that preacher got up and, and he preached out of the book of Psalms. And it was a passage of scripture that David grabbed hold of, and to this day, he would tell you it is absolutely his favorite verse of scripture found buried deep in that book. The hundredth chapter, verse 3, this is what it says very simply. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. Now, he loves that translation of it, David does. But there's another translation that really sums this up better, and David would tell you that as well. It reads like this. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and not we ourselves. It is God who made us, and not we ourselves. David realized that this chip on his shoulder was causing him to see God not as God. And he realized that this chip on his shoulder was causing him to see himself sitting in the place of God. Because over and over and over again, David would say, if I was God, I would never let anything like this happen. If I was God, bad things would never happen to people, certainly not to children. And then that preacher had him that night seeing things totally different. Listen to this again. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. In that moment, David made a decision that he would begin the process of honestly worshiping God. He would begin to honestly worship God. What he discovered was that in honest worship, he could get to a place where he could understand passages like Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's no longer about me, it's about him. He began to embrace other passages like Jesus saying, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, and the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you were to ask David today about his earliest memories, he wouldn't tell you about growing up in his parents' house. He would tell you his earliest memories of the faith when he began to love his neighbor as himself, when he began to change his focus. Honest worship brought that about. Prior to that, what he would tell you he was involved in was a dishonest worship where he was trying to manipulate God. He was trying to get God to do for him what he wanted rather than placing himself in a place where he would do what God wanted him to do. Dishonest worship versus honest worship. There's huge differences between them. 
I love the way one author would sum that up. Honest worship happens when we stop trying to manipulate God to do for us what we want, and rather we cooperate with Him so that He can do in us what He wants. The latter really should be our goal. I'm not just going to worship so that God will give me what I want. I'm going to worship so that God will do within me what He wants. When we get to that place, folks, when we get to that place, there is something laid within us that can change our lives. You want to know what it is? It's faith. Faith becomes a part of us. Faith takes hold and we begin to trust. And when we trust, we can go places that we could never get on our own. Faith changes our perspective and makes us get to a a place where we stop looking at ourselves and we look to God for leadership. And we say things like this, Lord, wherever you want me to go, I will follow. You lead and I will follow. This morning, I want to show you what that type of a faith looks like. In order to get there, we've got to look a little bit from the negative. Go with me to the book of Ephesians, would you? Ephesians chapter 6. I want to share with you as we get right into this, something that maybe you're not aware of. When you decide to develop a faith in God, when you decide to surrender your life to Him, you will spend every day under attack. Now listen to this, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you are deciding to walk by faith, if you are deciding to get involved in a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and it is the greatest decision you will ever make, you need to know this. That faith will always be under attack. Now, we will read that and hear people talk about spiritual warfare and think to ourselves that that means that we are going to be in a physical battle all the time. That's not what the Bible teaches. You're going to be in a spiritual battle, and that battle will rage around you all the time. Every moment of every day, Satan has his crosshairs set on you. He's looking at ways to render you ineffective and unproductive in your walk with the Lord. And in order to do that, he has to attack your faith. We'll find out in just a few minutes that God actually gives us a way of dealing with those types of attacks, but the Bible will describe them as flaming arrows that the enemy is shooting at us. Now, if you really want to understand that illustration, you have to put it within the right time frame. The days when Paul was writing the Bible, when the Lord was inspiring all of the authors, battle was done hand-to-hand more than anything else. And prior to the hand-to-hand combat of the two sides, where they would square off against one another in a field, there would be archers that would lead the way. They would stand off in the distance, shooting arrows at the enemy. The enemy would carry with them shields that they would bow down behind, and they would hold those shields up to block the arrows. The archers' whole job was to whittle down the number of forces that were going to attack their side. So they were going to try to take out as many as they possibly could with arrows. If they really wanted to get them, they would light those arrows on fire. The arrows would be lobbed towards the enemy. They would get down behind their shields and try to hide from them. And the flaming arrow, no different than the the non-flaming arrow, would hit the shield, sometimes penetrating the shield. The question you might have to ask is, why did they light them on fire then? 
Well, of course, they were trying to burn them, but they didn't have on a lot of flammable clothes. The reason they lit them on fire was intimidation and fear. That was it. You think about it. You know that there's an arrow coming at you. That's not a very encouraging thought. If it's on fire, it's terrifying. I don't want to be hit by the flaming arrow. I certainly don't want to be hit by the other arrow, but I don't want to be hit by the flaming arrow. And you can see them coming. The flaming arrow causes people to tremble. That's the exact type of arrow that Satan uses. Even today, it's a flaming arrow fueled by fear. From the beginning of time, one of the greatest weapons that our enemy has had is the weapon of fear. Think about how it works. He causes you to say, what if this doesn't work? What if God isn't God? What if Jesus didn't really die for my sins? What if God says in the Bible that He can transform me and He can't? What if Jesus says that He can deal with all of my sins, all of my past, all of my hurts, and He really can't? That is a fear-based question. The what-ifs of our walk with Christ are all fear-based. From the very beginning of time, from the moment Satan entered this earth, that's what he's done. Go with me back to the book of Genesis, would you? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. These are the very first words Satan ever spoke to a human being. This is the first temptation that was ever put in front of any human being. And I want you to listen to what he says. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did you catch it? That's his first question. Did God really say? That's a what if question. Did God really tell you this? Is that really the instructions that he put before you? Interesting to me that from the very beginning, the what ifs were placed out there. Maybe you could do this and still get God's blessing. Maybe you could live this way. Maybe you could eat this fruit. And it could take you further than you ever thought. Satan has done that right from the start. Right from the start. Biggest battles that Christianity faces today are what-if questions that are fear-based. Biggest battles that churches face are what-if questions that are fear-based. What if God didn't really say that? And you could live this way. What if God didn't really mean that, and you can do this? That grabs people's attention all the time, and they try to distort the Word of God from it. They try to change the Word of God from it. Fear-based questions have always been there. They lead to questions and doubts. Fear-based attacks have always been there, always been there. And I want you to listen to how the Bible would deal with those. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Which means if God said it, it still stands. He has not changed his mind. He has not changed his word. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yet these flaming arrows are still being lobbed at us. These flaming arrows are still coming in such a way as to cause us to question Because that's what Satan has always done. I have long said that the enemy of God is not creative. He does not come up with new ideas. He simply repackages the old over and over and over again. 
Have you ever wondered why it is that you struggle with the same sins even after you've experienced some sort of victory? Because Satan keeps coming in through the same doors. He's not creative. He's not coming up with new ways to attack you. Not at all. The flaming arrows are always the same. They're fear-based. Every one of them. So here's what God does for us. God gives us faith to deal with them. Go back to Ephesians 6 with me. In the middle of Paul's discussion on the armor of God, there's this great little verse tucked away. I'm going to pick up in verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now listen to this, verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Faith is the armor's armor. Before we can go hand-to-hand in battle, God says, you hide behind your faith and it will extinguish those flames, those arrows that are coming. You get to a place where you hide yourself behind faith and faith will deal with the arrows so that you can move ahead. Faith is the armor's armor. God gave it to us to protect us from the very beginning, from the things that Satan would lob at us from a distance. God says, let's deal with those and your faith can help. Your faith can accomplish this. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what's been called the love chapter, Paul would write these words, and then these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. Now, if we were to deal with love, here's what we would find. If we just pulled it out of that verse and studied it in Scripture, 1 John chapter 4 would tell us that the perfect love of Jesus Christ will destroy fear. The perfect love of Jesus Christ will extinguish all of those arrows of fear that Satan might lob at us. And hope helps us see the future. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31 says, But those who hope on the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, some translations would say, will renew their strength. They will run and not grow weary. That's what hope does for us. Hope says, I can wait on God no matter how long it takes. I can wait on God because I've already gotten rid of all of the fear. I can now wait, trusting that God is God. And faith allows me to do that. Faith will allow me to get to where God wants me to be. And when faith grows within us, amazing things happen. We experience things that prior to that growth would be impossible for us. Faith is an amazing thing. Now, some of you might think, I've been in the church a long time. I've been in Christ a long time. Sometimes I feel like my faith is very weak. Anybody ever feel like your faith is very weak? Sometimes I feel like my faith is very weak. Let me see those hands again. How many of you feel like your faith is very weak? Well, I want to help you figure out how to make it strong today, and then I'll show you what that will do for you. We're going to do this pretty quick. I've got to give credit to two different ladies named Beth for what I'm about to share with you. The first goes to Beth Moore, great Bible teacher. She actually comes up with these five things that I want to share with you. And Beth Burns did the layout for us, the design. Now, Beth Moore teaches that there are five strands of faith that if we can get them all in place and rehearse them on a regular basis, we can find a shield that will protect our walk with God. 
I really like how she does this. She says that we need to hold up our hands. So I'm going to ask you to do the same thing with me. I want you to hold up your hands. And we're going to go through these five things together. They're going to come up on the screen, and you're going to be able to see them. On your thumb, Beth Moore would say that we need to remind ourselves all the time that God is who He says He is. So with your thumb moving just like this, I want you to repeat after me. God is who He says He is. Now let's do that again. God is who He says He is. All right, on the second finger, and you can wave that finger just like this so we all know we're together, she would say this. God, let me get this right. God can do what He says He can do. Now repeat after me. God can do what He says He can do. So let's go back to the first one. God is who He says He is. God can do what He says He can do. The third one sounds like this. I am who God says I am. Everybody ready? I am who God says I am. So let's go back to the first one. God is who He says He is. God can do what He says He can do. I am who God says I am. And the fourth one right here, the fourth one says that I can do all things through Christ. One more time. I can do all things through Christ. Let's try it again. I can do all things through Christ. That's a huge faith statement. It really is. And look at the fifth one. Right here, the fifth one. The Word of God is alive and active within me. Now repeat that after me. The Word of God is alive and active within me. So let's go through them one more time. God is who He says He is. God can do what He says He can do. I am who God says I am. I can do all things through Christ. And the Word of God is alive and active within me. Now, Beth Moore would teach that if you're out for a walk and your faith is weak, if you'll remind yourself of those five things, this shield will get back in place. If you're driving down the road and your faith is weak, she says, rehearse these five things and your shield will get back in place. If you're at work and your faith is weak, rehearse these five things. If you're in your family and your faith is weak, rehearse these five things. If you're trying to remind yourself why you need to stay on the course that God has for you, rehearse these five things. I would add to it this. Once you have said all five of them, the coolest thing you can possibly do is ball your fist up like this and say, I believe God. Try it with me. I believe God. Now let's go through them together. Ready? Number one, God is who He says He is. God can do what He says He can do. I am who God says I am. I can do all things through Christ. God's Word is alive and active within me. And are you ready for this? I believe God. Now you didn't have much conviction with that. So let's do it one more time. I believe God. One more time. I believe God. Every once in a while. When we are in worship, Ray Brossman will raise his hands in worship. And have you seen this? Every once in a while, he will ball up that giant fist of his. And he'll hold it up in the air as if to say, I believe God. I believe what I'm singing. I pray with a group of guys on Sunday morning, and I shouldn't admit this, but I'm going to because most of you are guilty of the same type of thing. Every once in a while when we're praying, I'll just let my eyes kind of come open or at least one of them, because I love to watch people pray. It isn't just the words that can inspire. Sometimes it's the posture. 
And some of those guys that I pray with, when they're praying, they will ball up their fist and their arms will actually be moving as they're praying in expectation of what God is going to do, as if they're saying, I believe God. I believe what I am praying. I believe what I am asking the Lord for. I believe God. Now that is a great declaration. That is a great declaration that we all need to hold on to in faith. And when we do, we can actually get behind this shield and extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. And here's what that'll do for us. Go to the Old Testament with me. Book of Joshua. Chapter 3, there we go. Starting in verse 3. Joshua is getting ready to lead the children of Israel into the promises of God. They are just about to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. This is a cool time in their lives. Nine times in the first chapter of Joshua, God would say to Joshua, you be bold and courageous. You take the right steps. You do what you need to do. Not only does he say, be bold and courageous, but he follows it up this way, for the Lord your God goes with you. That's a faith statement. Be bold and courageous, for the Lord your God goes with you. Chapter 3, though, he says this. These are great words, starting in verse 3. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priest who are Levites carrying it, you're to move out from your position and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. Now that's a faith passage. Here's what God wants Joshua to know. I will always move ahead of you. When the Ark of the Covenant starts moving, you fall in behind it. You follow those people because they're following my direction, and I'll take you where you need to go. Do you ever worry when you face new experiences that you've never been here before and you don't know what to do? God would teach you follow His plan. Have you ever come up against a new season in your life and thought to yourself, I've never been here before. I don't know what to do with this. That might happen at high school graduation. That might happen in marriage. That might happen with the birth of a child. That might happen with job changes. That might happen with retirement. I've never been here before. This is a new season. What God would say is that in faith you follow God. You do what He has told you to do. Obedience will lead you to the promises of God. Obedience will lead you to the blessings of God. What most people will do in faith, though, is let God move on ahead of them and they'll stay right where they're at. They don't move. When you don't move, you miss the blessings of God. When you stay right where you're at, you miss all that God has in store for you. And God says, I don't want you to think you have to go alone. Not at all. When I move ahead of you, all you have to do is follow. So if God's taking you into a new place, you just follow. Be faithful with what he's doing. Let me give you an interesting illustration of that. Our candle ministry is overseen by five or six people all over the age of 70. It's really a cool thing. And they started it when they, a couple of them were in their late 60s and the rest of them were in their 70s. They went into territory that they had never been in before, but they were faithful and said, okay, God, if that's what you want us to do, then we will follow you and God moves ahead of them. That's the same thing with all of us. I don't care where you're at. If you're at a new season and you're scared and worried about what it holds for you, you follow God into it. And He'll take you into the blessings. You know what blessings are? Ever really wondered about that? For many of us, we want to just equate those with financial blessings, health blessings, all kinds of things like that. That's not it at all. Blessings are those things that occur in our lives when we bow down, when we bow down 
and experience what our heart and our mind and our soul know that without God we could never have. Those are blessings. That may be peace in your life. That may be healthy relationships. That may be financial blessings. That may be health blessings. That may be answers to prayers. Whatever it is, it is when we bow down before God and the inner parts of ourselves get to receive what the Lord has for us. It is the best of Him. Faith allows us to experience that even when we have to go where we've never gone before. Faith allows that. You go there. And you go right behind the Lord because He's always moving ahead of us. Always moving ahead of us. It's pretty cool teaching. It really is. Now here's one of the things that can distract us as we wrap this up. When we are following God and we are doing what God wants us to do and the flaming arrows are being launched at us, we know that that flaming arrow of fear is coming our way. There's another one that you have to be careful of. I would call it the flaming arrow of distraction because it can knock you off of a faith path. You can get so distracted that you leave the path that God has for you. And I'll show you what I'm talking about as we close this out. Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4, verse 40. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that's why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. If you're ever wondering about Jesus leading the way for us during the three years of his ministry and the 33 years of his life. Rest assured in this, he has led the way in everything that we have to deal with. He just came out of the wilderness where he had been tempted for 40 days by the devil, hand-to-hand combat with him. And now he's doing good work. He's healing these people. But it's time for him to leave. And he knows that. It's time for him to move on. And the crowds tried to keep him from going. They tried to distract him. Stay here, we need you. Don't move on, you have to be with us. There are still sick people. There are still blind people, lame people. They need you. The crowds became a distraction. And Jesus rebuked them and he said, I have to go. I need to do something else. I need to be somewhere else. Folks, faith deals with distractions too. Because one of the things that the devil wants to do is distract you. Crowds are some of his favorite ways. You ever been caught up in a crowd? Friends that wanted you to do certain things when you knew you needed to not? Have you ever been surrounded by people that tried to get you to go a different way even though you knew God was leading a certain way? In today's world, it's interesting to me, crowds are not just physical people, sometimes they're online. And we can get stuck in online crowds and not do the things that God wants us to do. It's one of the the mighty flaming arrows of Satan. And faith says, I'm on the path that God wants me to be on. I will not leave it. I will not leave it. I will stay this course no matter what. And God blesses that. Folks, he has given us this wonderful tool to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy, to take us places we've never been before, that we might experience things that we couldn't fathom without him. And God says, I want to lead you there. 
and I'll take you places that you've never gone. All you have to do is follow. Isn't that a great teaching? In those moments where things are getting weak, five strands that will cause you to say, I believe God, and I am willing to go with Him. It works. Your faith will be under attack, so therefore it will get weak. You believe God, and He'll take you great places.